Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Uh, just as a periodic reminder, uh, if you like these episodes, please subscribe on all the different podcasting services and leave us positive reviews. Um, it's helpful for us to know that someone cares. So today we're going to talk about uh, an unfortunately dreary subject that I had hoped we would never have to talk about again, but that's COVID and what's happening with COVID and the politics surrounding COVID. and. A bright side to that is that it was an excuse for us to have on the show someone that we've wanted to have on for a while. That's Megan McArdle, who is a columnist at the Washington Post and the author of the book, The Upside and Down, that you may remember from a couple of years ago. So, Megan, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So, it's now November, uh, and COVID... The discussion around COVID has kind of gone through several waves, much like COVID itself. Um, I think I would like to start, before we talk about what's going on now, is maybe we can go back to the beginning of the year, and everybody, I think, came to consciousness, COVID and and all that stuff at different points, and my recollection is that you were uh, a little bit earlier on the game than a lot of people in terms of thinking that this is going to be a big deal and a big threat. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how did you first come uh, to be aware of COVID or the coronavirus, uh, as I think we were calling it back then? Yes. And, and, you know, how did your thinking on that get get formed? Yeah, I was, I guess, like prematurely Um, (laughs) anti-COVID, as they used to say about the old communists, prematurely anti-fascist. So actually, uh, shout out to, I have a group of commenters from my Bloomberg site who didn't like the fact that the Washington Post was behind a paywall and also just had a lot more commenters who were already kind of native to the site. And so they started a Facebook group. And I like I drop into this Facebook group to say because I used to some of these people have been commenting on my various iterations of my blogging and columns since the early 2000s. And so I drop in to see how they're doing and I comment on the Facebook group sometimes and um, they were very interested in it. And in part because there's um, there's one guy who does a lot of business in China. Uh, he gets stuff fabricated and then sells it on Amazon. Um, I've mentioned him on podcasts before. So, um, <laughs> if, if this, if any of my listeners ever listen, hi, Aaron. Um, and so they were talking about this and they were talking about how concerned they should be. There are also people who have spouses from China and, and so forth. So they were talking about it and they were worried. And I started looking into it. And meanwhile, I am on the road. I am, uh, I was doing the campaign, the primary. And so I, basically left my house um in early january and i would like come back for two days and then i would go back on the road immediately and that persisted basically through march and so i'm reading all this stuff and i'm I'm, i started watching there's a british doctor who was fairly early doing youtube videos on this and i started in february i'm watching these youtube videos about the coronavirus and how worried should we be and so forth and i am calling my husband and saying 
okay, we're, we need to hoard. And my husband thinks I'm completely insane. Also, I should say, I'm kind of a hypochondriac. And so it's very hard for my friends and family to distinguish the fact that I'm worried about this virus from the fact that I think I, you know, I get cancer like every six months and like start making my will. And so I am calling it. I'm like, look, just buy stuff. I'm ordering some groceries. I need you to put them away. And he is understandably resistant to what seems like his wife under the strain of getting on an airplane every three days has like broken down. Um, and I'm having all of these quiet back channel conversations with people about what I'm doing. You know, I got home. Meanwhile, my dad um, on in in late February, early March, goes to the hospital with what turns out to be a congestive heart failure. And so I am now <laughs> doubly concerned because my father is in like ground zero for catching this thing. Um, I'm calling my husband and saying, but what I'm and, and saying, horde, what I'm not doing is writing about it. Mm-hmm. And so I come home from the campaign trail and then I'm supposed to go out again. I mean, I'd done like the big ones, but then I'm supposed to, you know, I finished Utah. Uh, which was weirdly where I was on Super Tuesday for just because I was supposed to be there anyway for something else. The critical, critical. Yeah, the critical, critical, critical. It was actually a really interesting place, though, to do Super Tuesday. I'm really glad I was there and not in one of the bigger, sexier states. But so I come home and I I had this big long form piece that was supposed to run that has not run and probably won't run until next year now because it's never really been right for the moment. Um, it was sort of a heartwarming food piece. The, and I come home and we're talking about it. We're talking about we're going to get, um, you know, do art and so forth. And I was like, oh, yeah. And by the way, I'm going to be isolating. <laughs> um, and it was like everyone in this meeting is kind of looking at me like, you're, you're going to be isolating, huh? <laughs> Crazy person. Um, and I was like, I should actually write why I'm doing this. Right. And what I said was at the time, um, you know, partly sincerely and partly because it made me sound less crazy (laughs) was that I would have, I might have to go up and take care of my dad when he got out of the hospital and I didn't want to bring coronavirus with me. I mean, as it turned out, this was irrelevant because my father then got coronavirus from the rehab facility the hospital sent him to. Um, But uh, I didn't know that at the time. And so I was like, no, I'm just, you know, out of an abundance of caution, I'm making sure I don't give my dad COVID because, you know, he's in a high risk group. Um, and so I thought I have to write a column explaining why I'm concerned. And so I wrote it using like this really old example that anyone who's done any kind of even basic grad level math knows it's the example of the lily pads. And now (laughs) in fairness, I made the little pond too big because I have no sense of space, but, uh, okay. So take, take, assume that you have a pond, you have a, a single lily pad in a pond. And every day the lily pad doubles and assume that it will, uh, the number of lily pads, you know, they each split into two little lily pods. They're like bacteria. They reproduce by fission in our fictional example. If you assume that it's going to take 16 days for the lily pads to completely cover the pond, on what day will the pond be half covered, right? It's actually not that hard of brain. You don't need to have done grad math to do this. It's just the sort of thing that they ask you on the first day to make you feel like a total idiot and prepare you for the idea that you don't know anything about anything. And the answer is day 15. Right. Right. And this is the, the, the terror and the magic of exponential growth is that everything looks fine. If you think about this, you know, on day like 13, you would barely even know the lily pads were there right, is the thing with exponential growth is everything looks fine until it's like suddenly really not fine. Um, and that was the and that was the col- first column that I wrote that I think was really about 
like, guys, we should take this seriously. And here is why I am worried, even though it does not look very serious right now. Every so often in their life, a columnist gets to be prescient, <laughs> stopped <laughs> clock and all that. Um, and so I wrote this right before everything went bonkers. And also it just proved really useful to for people who were concerned to explain to relatives who were like, I'm looking around and everything seems to be fine. What is wrong with you, crazy hypochondriac? You know, and then, of course, two weeks later, the stock market's crashing. We're all in lockdown and everything is terrible. Um, and that was like that was when I started writing about COVID a lot. And I sort of haven't stopped since then. Yeah, it is. There is a very surreal feeling that comes over you when you are, you know, in the supermarket aisle with a 20 pound bag of rice and a bunch of, you know, canned goods or whatever. And you look around and everything's normal. (laughs) It's, you know, even if you're, even if you're like pretty, pretty sure that uh, uh, what you're doing is perfectly rational it, there's a there's a kind of unreality about it, a disconnect that is kind of hard to just. Describe. Well, so there's actually this is actually a cognitive bias that's well known, and one problem they have is, for example, in plane crashes, it can, you know, the stereotype of when there's a disaster is that everyone just like freaks out, starts screaming and clawing at each other, and actually the more dangerous thing is that they don't do that. The more dangerous thing is that they're like, well, everything seems to be fine. I mean, sure, I smell a little smoke, but I'm going to, you know, sit here quietly while everyone like orderly files off. I'm going to get my, oh, I got to get my laptop. Oh, I, I dropped my favorite pen. I'm going to hunt under the sea for, no, get off the airplane. And if you take nothing else from this podcast, I hope that like, if you are ever in a plane crash and you survive it, don't futz with anything and don't think, don't look around and see the fact that everyone else is basically calm and everything seems fine make you think you can take your time don't sit there while the smoke fills the plane and then choke to death which is actually a thing that happens get off the plane just yes. get and up and get still, off we, even we, if it looks normal we still have like six weeks left in the in the year do you really have to bring in the ideas of other tragedies well, <laughs> i mean the good news is i'm not getting on a plane in the next six weeks so, <laughs> right? right this right. is actually like it's very distant no but it's a real problem is that All you feel like yeah, you could be in an office building. I don't know if you're probably not going to be in an office building in the next six weeks. But if someone is and there's a yeah. fire or something there, you also don't want to go back for your laptop. <laughs> yeah. And here is a thing that I think has been a, a continuing problem all along with certainly with my communication. I should I feel like I think back and I wish I had done better in a lot of ways at this is that. You know, like when I'm looking now, I think we're in crisis. And I think we're in crisis because I think the hospitals are in, I don't, not making a prediction because God knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks. But I think there's a real danger that we're already at our peak. We're already at the worst levels we've had with, with this disease. Um, and that everyone going home for Thanksgiving is going to turbocharge that. And you're going to get hospital failures where they just buckle the way they did in Lombardy. And New York barely avoided that by importing a bunch of people from other places in the country and by canceling every other like procedure they might think about doing. But that's less of an option now because it's so many places at once. Now, I'm not predicting this will happen. This is what I'm worried will happen. And here's the problem with that prediction is that like most people I've, I've been talking to, when I say things are really bad and we have to take drastic action, for them, there's like two poles. It's like everything's basically fine or the walking dead. Right. right. And and so when I say everything's really bad and we need to do something, they're thinking that what I'm saying is we are all going to die of this. No, we're not all going to die of this. Right. It, you know, it, it disproportionately targets the elderly. 
Uh, we don't know what the long-term side effects are um, for younger people. There clearly are some. We don't have good numbers on it. I wouldn't venture to guess how many people are going to have long-term serious debilitating side effects from having gotten this infection. Um, but it's bad if the hospitals crash. The death rates spike hugely. And it's not just people who were going to die in three months. It's people who might have had 10 or 12 or 15 more years to hug grandkids and hold their first great-grandchild and to see sunsets and to breathe and to do all of the things that you are doing right now and that you would not want to end. Um, That's the stuff we're fighting against. And that's very hard to communicate because people are so primed by disaster movies to think that it's all or nothing it's like the entire country is on fire and every and 80% of the population dies or else everything's fine. And there's an in-between there that we're not really very good at parsing. Yeah, the thing that worries me, I, I'm also very worried. And uh, part of the reason I think is back in, and this I think relates to what you were saying, back at the end of March, early April, you, you did have a moment where I think almost everybody, uh, you know, they were pretty concerned. They're pretty scared. They, you know, they, they were, you, you had serious restrictions on, you know, wh- where you could leave your house, but you also, p- there was high compliance with it, right? Because yes. people, you know, people were worried. And I think in the same way, and this was, I, I noticed this even at the time, it's been true lately, is that. In the same way, you know, like people have a hard time understanding exponential growth. Uh, the idea of like counterfactual reasoning, right? Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Huge, huge thing. So, I mean, there, you know, I, I remember there, there are a lot. I've had endless conversations with people where they said, "Well, the the projections were that two million people were going to die of this thing, and uh, now it's like two hundred, three hundred thousand, so, you know, two hundred fifty thousand, and so the projections were wrong." and Maybe those projections were wrong, but uh, the fact that, uh, you know, we shut down half the <laughs> right the economy for a month and not as many people died, like, the, the point of doing that was to avoid <laughs> two million people dying. Right. And in some ways, you know, that projection was really unrealistic because it assumed that no one did yes. anything, right. right? Is that not only that we didn't shut anything down, but that everyone just basically agreed collectively that we were all going to pretend that it wasn't happening. And that right. was never very realistic because you have cowards like me who are you know, <laughs> <laughs> out of an abundance of caution. Um, and so I think, yeah, yeah, this is also a huge problem is I think we have averted some deaths, not as many as I wish we had. Um, but because we did, it people are now like, well, you, the, the bad thing you said would happen didn't happen. It was like, yes, because we did the good thing I said we should do. Right. It's not like um, people are just really bad. And it is also true, though, that, of course, people, including me, I'm sure, have motivated reasoning about uh, about their their counterfactuals. Is you <laughs> Well, I assume that if, if I had not spoken up, if I had not written that column in early March, you know, walking dead, basically, right. I saved us. So. Yeah. <laughs> so we, you know, we do seem to be having a, a, a recent surge again. Do you, and I guess let me preface this by saying this isn't like your column where you should be very specific, uh, very research based with that, with all the data. This is just a podcast that nobody listens to. <laughs> so with that in mind, do you have, do you care to speculate what prompted the latest surge? Um, 
I think we have a pretty good idea that uh, we don't necessarily know the exact specifics. What we know is that respiratory viruses tend to be seasonal. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that uh, when it is cold, people in northern latitudes go inside because it is warmer inside. And so, um, you know, what happened in one of the things that we really lucked out with was that most people, by the time COVID had spread behind beyond um, international airport areas like New York, like Seattle and so forth, like Atlanta, um, it was getting warm and more people were outside. So, you know, when you're outside, you're just, there's more airflow. And for respiratory viruses, that's great. UV uh, seems to kill viruses. Not clear how much of a role that's playing, but it might help. Um, and then the other thing is vitamin D, which we know is associated with immune health. This is speculative, so do not go out and start, you know, jamming 10,000 uh, IUs of, of uh, vitamin D in your mouth unless you have a vitamin D deficiency. But uh, we know that people in northern latitudes, um, so people with darker skin who, you know, whose ancestors originally would have lived closer to the equator, um, those people actually have trouble making vitamin D year-round because uh, the melanin in their skin inhibits vitamin D synthesis. Um, for lighter-skinned people, it becomes a big problem in the fall. Basically, it's and it's not how much you're outside, it's the angle of the sun coming through the atmosphere. I am not a physicist, I do not understand this. Uh, but it may be also that uh, some pe- a lot of people are vitamin D deficient at higher latitudes. So, um, you know, especially in Europe, where, you know, we forget this, like Rome is on the same latitude as, as like, God, I forget which city it is. I mean, it, 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 yeah, it's, as New York, right, is that uh, because of the Gulf Stream, it's a lot warmer there for a given latitude. Um, but most of Europe is, is quite a bit north of the United States. And so, um, you know, they're, they're more vitamin D deficient than we are, basically, which would explain why it came earlier even though the temperature differential is not that big. Um, so anyway, it, you know, that might also be playing a role. Um, so we know that it's it's got this seasonal component. And we also know, look, where did it spike in the summer? In the south. And what was everyone in Texas and Arizona and Florida doing? Going inside where it's air conditioned because it was gross out, right? So that's definitely helping to drive it. And if you look at where it's worse now, right? Where is it? It's on the upper Plains states where it is just miserable. Like Bismarck, North Dakota was 24 degrees last week. Um, And so of course people are inside and that's going to spread it. And then there are other things. People are tired. I'm, I'm exhausted. And I'm like a paranoid person who as a columnist writing about this has to live up to her own uh, exhortations. Um, I'm totally exhausted by this. I would like it to be over. I would like it to be over last week. I have weird. I had a dream the other night that consisted literally of just me sitting in a bar and having a, in a hotel and having a waiter put a gin and tonic in front of me. That was the whole dream. And I woke up and I'm like, I wanted to cry. (laughs) I was like so wistful. And, um, and that's just a little thing. And of course the things I miss more are just being able to hop on a plane and see my dad and like going to see friends and being in houses and, going to plays and movies and all of these things we miss them and we want to do them and people are just they're not keeping up they're not able they feel not able i will i won't say they aren't able i think they could they are not willing there's covid fatigue and when you have covid fatigue it's a lot easier to let other people who also have covid fatigue talk you into doing things that are probably not a great idea 
And I think that's, you know, this is also a big part of it. And then there's the political angle, right? And it's, it's, it's so bad. It's so bad that like this stuff, look, we can have reasonable disagreements about whether you should, you know, when you should wear masks, how much risk it's, we should take to, you know, go to church, do family stuff, whatever. We can have arguments about when, at what point schools should close, if ever, about should we close bars and restaurants, et cetera. We can have arguments about all of that stuff. That's legit. But the fact that it breaks down on party lines, there's no reason it should. This is just ridiculous. It's just a sad, sad moment for our country that that we are fighting about this, not even really because it's what we personally believe, but because it has become a totem of who we are as political animals in an incredibly polarized country. Yes. Let me ask about that because it's almost as strange and in some ways frightening as uh, COVID itself. But, you know, I remember back during the very early period, uh, late January, early February-ish, there was, if anything, a rightward tilt to the people who uh, were very worried about uh, COVID or the coronavirus, right? So, I mean, that, you know, certainly there, there were some people in the tech community, there were some people associated, you know, who had links to uh, Hong Kong or, you know, Chinese dissident communities. There were, you know, a number of accounts on Twitter, other places, uh, some folks, but my impression is that, you know, most of the people that I saw anyway, who were really early worried about COVID uh, were on the right. And it is the case that, you know, you, the flip side of that is that you had a lot of uh, dismiss dismissive stuff in some of the, yep. the, the mainstream, you know, liberal, liberal press. And then at some point, uh, after it's at some point that kind of reversed. And since then there's been this kind of like weird political gravity where over time it's gotten more and more extreme to the, to the point where I, I know some people who in January were hoarding food and were talking about, you know, how horrible it was going to be. And now you talk to them and, you know, they might as well be, uh, you know, Sean Davis <laughs> or, you know, someone yeah. else who's like completely dismissive. So what happened there? Why, why do you think that happened? Uh, what do you I, think is causing that? Uh, I think it's Trump. You think it's I think Trump? it's Trump on both sides, right? Wow. Look, Trump clearly decided very early on, you know, he's telling Bob Woodward that it's a big problem and it's a really dangerous virus. And he's going out and he's downplaying it to the public. Wow. Um, of course, his, his supporters do not believe that that happened. Um, but <laughs> You know, I, I'm just going to throw it out there. I think Bob Woodward is telling the truth and, and, and that he did, in fact, um, because it's clear just from watching what he did, right? He denies, denies, denies that it's a problem. He, and then the stock market falls by a third and clearly his advisors were like, it's not going to stop until you admit it's a problem. And then he admits it's a problem. And then he takes it seriously for like a week and a half. But clearly in his mind, the main problem was his reelection and his reelection bid had until that moment been premised on the idea that the economy is great under Trump. Vote for four more years of a great economy. That's a good platform to run on. It is a very successful platform to run on (laughs) historically for presidents. Right. And he couldn't 
pivot. He couldn't get off it, right? He had an idea of how this was supposed to go and COVID was disrupting that. And he just kept trying to run the same playbook. And in order to do that, COVID had to not be a problem. And he had some idea that he could just get everyone to like pretend that it wasn't a problem and and then go about their normal economic business and that everything would be fine. And that was, if you had any kind of a vaguely sophisticated idea, just of like liability law, <laughs> right? Like corporations were not going to be stacking their employees in to offices so that their employees could later file lawsuits against them and workman's comp claims, right? This was just bonkers. But that was what he decided was the line. And then he kept at it with actually, you know, ferocious determination. Give him that, I guess. Yeah. Um, and because of that, his followers picked up the signal. It was very clearly early on that people like Sean Davis, right? And the minute Trump said it's not a problem, suddenly it's not a problem. And they're like out there with that line and whatever, like they followed the Trump line just doggedly. That flipped it. And it flipped it on both sides. I mean, you know, I live in a very, very, very uh, progressive neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And it's a funny, there's like a funny pattern, which is, look, my neighborhood is not very dense. I live in a row house. It's, you know, it's dense by like ex-urban standards, but it is not dense by D.C. standards or urban standards. And I live in a row house and I live in a neighborhood full of row houses. It's not a lot of big apartment buildings. There's not a ton of people on the streets right now. And so when I go out and walk, I will I don't wear my mask necessarily over my face the whole time because like I'm climbing hills and right. I'm not in that great shape and I'm kind of old. Um, and But if there's another person coming towards me on the street, the, I, we both pull up our masks. Right. And now, is that necessary? <laughs> is it really, you know, I mean, the, it's pretty well ventilated in my neighborhood. <laughs> um, it's very unlikely that that kind of casual contact is going to give anyone COVID, but it's polite. That's what you do in my neighborhood. And like part of that is kind of our political identity. And you can see this. The more Trump refused to wear him because in early on when I was like the mask Nazi in my house, you know, everyone thought I was kind of weird. Like my family thought I was kind of weird about the masks and back in like April. Right. And you could see it. The, the more Trump insisted he wasn't wearing a mask. <laughs> the more the people in my neighborhood started putting them on because like we are against what Trump does. Right. And so it goes both ways. And I would argue that wearing a mask is more helpful than just adamantly refusing to do something that's really pretty small. Even, you know, I don't know how big the effect is in a grocery store or whatever. Right. But it's, it's such a trivial ask, right? What's the worst that, I mean, first of all, I think that the effect is, is, it, it's there. I don't. I. I can't tell you. I can't quantify it. But there's a reason surgeons wear masks, right? We. Right. We have tested this. But why refuse, right? And so I would argue that wearing a mask to signal something is more harmless than refusing to do something that probably has some effect on the on the spread of COVID, just to signal that like you love Donald Trump and and you're a real American who doesn't let anyone tell them what to do. Even so, it is true that this is it, this is a bipartisan thing of like everything is polarized. Anything Trump says is wrong to one half and anything Trump says is right to the other half. And there's very little kind of calm assessment because everyone's so angry at each other. And so I wrote a column in which I did not, in fact, urge any government intervention because I can't even imagine what that government intervention would be. Where I said, you know, maybe don't do the big family Thanksgiving. And I got rage at how I was nannying everyone and how I was, and I, I said, like, I actually didn't, I just said, it's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> right? I didn't tell you, I didn't say the government should break into your house and arrest you. I didn't say that they should 
shut down the airplanes. I didn't say any of that. I just said, like, you probably shouldn't. The hospitals don't look like they're in great shape. And, you know, if you've got elderly relatives, we're like three or four months away from, it, it looks very clear at this point, that we're three or four months away from a vaccine that they can take and then be really pretty assured of not getting COVID. And you, if you, are you going to look back on that four hour dinner and be like, yeah, I'm really glad that I had that four hour dinner instead of eight more years with dad. Cause I'm not going to. And so like, you know, we are taking extreme, you know, I'm potted with my mom. We've not had another adult in our house since, uh, um, since March, uh, except like, you know, like briefly a workman comes in to, to repair something or something. And, you know, we leave the house. Um, but so I'm, you know, but we're having a four person Thanksgiving because right. precisely because like, we're not inviting friends, beloved friends over and the people that we love normally having, um, because like this year it's going to be uh, small and select. And I, I didn't even say like, don't have, you know, if your mom's dying of cancer, don't have Thanksgiving. Obviously your mother is dying of cancer and she's not going to be here next year. Like, don't worry about giving her COVID, worry about having your last Thanksgiving together. But that's not the situation most people are in. And you can't even say that. It's just this you know what? completely, it's so polarized. It's so bitter that anything that you say, however mild, is interpreted as basically like me busting into your house with a nightstick and being like, <laughs> like drop that turkey. <laughs> it's just. Um, yeah. Now, what what, what I think is interesting is, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I believe that you identify as libertarian. Yes. I, I, and, you know, what I think is interesting about that is you certainly see, and I'm, I'm not going to name names, one of which has been on this show, on a different topic, that are, you know, sort of identified as libertarian and have sort of very much taken the uh, the approach of downplaying the risks and so forth and, and uh, casting shade at all the government restrictions. But on the flip side, I've always thought that because I, I have libertarian leanings myself, that that if you're going to be libertarian, if you're going to say the government doesn't need to step in and control your life, that what you're also saying, the counterpart to that is you've got to take matters into your own hands and be responsible for yourself. And so I thought there's a certain, I, I guess you could say, a certain integrity to what you're saying of be responsible with your own actions for, you know, for Thanksgiving be responsible for your actions for how this might affect your family members. So I will say that, you know, in fairness, I do in fact believe in pretty stringent government interventions on this, but I should also say I always did. And this is the weird thing is like the people for decades, literally for decades, because I have a thing about public health. <laughs> I really like, I fight with public health people a lot um, on, you know, the kind of the obesity and the e-cigarettes and all of this stuff. We get into a lot of quarrels. And every time I would get into a quarrel, I would be like, this is not like infectious disease, which is a totally legitimate use of government power because you are, you know, they're externalities. They affect other people. And, you know, the government has a right to step in and pre prevent you from spreading uh, an infectious disease. I think the government had a right to step in and jail Mary Mellon for the rest of her life, this otherwise known as Typhoid Mary, because she wouldn't stop working as a cook. Um, you know, and they told her, you could stop working as a cook or we could remove your gallbladder where the the bacteria were hanging out but you otherwise you have to stay in this prison she chose prison and i think that was okay because she was killing other people um and i've always thought this but when we and no one ever said that's outrageous how can you say that like that's no libertarian ever stepped up and was like 
your your opinions about infectious disease are appalling and like i i expel you from libertarian movement it's really hilarious because we have no organizing right authority it's just like we all just go around expelling each other all the time it's wonderful so um but then you know we actually had a case of, of infectious disease really for the first time since the 1950s and suddenly people were horrified to find out that i had meant it because i guess a lot of people either didn't think it through or had had a, it was a kind of symbolic concession that didn't matter so you know why why it was just something you said but of course since it was never going to come up it was okay to give that imaginary concession i'd never thought about it as an imaginary concession i was assumed you know we could have a pandemic and then the government would have to do a bunch of stuff i would normally not approve of i think we can argue about that we can fight about how much of it is necessary i had these same fights during the financial crisis uh in kind of the same way which is i'd always thought the fdic and similar kind of interventions to stop bank runs in a in a short-term scenario were okay and a lot of people didn't um, and that's a legit fight to have, but no one had ever noticed that I'd said that before because it hadn't really been very salient. If you believe that the government can't do any of that stuff, then you have to believe that the community can and that individuals are going to step up and do this stuff. It can't just be that, like, I have a right to poison you, right? Because just leaving us, I mean, maybe you do believe that and maybe you have some philosophical justification. You can't run a society that way. I think what we ran into was a lot of people hadn't really thought those intuitions through very clearly and because they hadn't had to. And when we ran up against it, suddenly they did. Um, and what they came out with was something that, you know, it's not really an ethic of care. It's not an ethic of responsibility. It's just an ethic of like, no one can tell me what to do. And that's part of libertarianism. But, you know, we're, man is a social animal. There's got to be some way for us to live in society. And either it's because in responsible individuals are going to step up and be able to work with other responsible individuals to get good results in a group pri through private, you know, non-coerced initiatives, or it is because we have a government that achieves that. But there's not a third option where, like, it's just a freeform jazz odyssey. Everyone does what they want because that is you know, sort of Hobbesian chaos. That is the law of the street. And no libertarian is actually like, you know what my ideal world is like crack wars, right? That's not actually what we want to live in. We want to live in safe, healthy, happy communities where people are not hurting each other. And that is something that, you know, and I think it's also true that you ask questions about, you do get asked questions about, well, if you went to the party with a flu, was that bad? And, you know, I would say that now I realized that it was worse than I realized, right? That I was doing something that was bad that I should not have done. I'm not, I don't think I've ever actually personally gone to, to a party with the flu, but I have gone to like the office with a cold. And I would like to see us provide those, those norms because I've just realized, has anyone else realized this? How great it is not to have colds. <laughs> I haven't had one in a year. It's wonderful. <laughs> the last one I had was in Iowa in, uh, in, uh, in January, actually. So I am also a supporter of restrictions, uh, even potentially pretty harsh ones, uh, depending on the circumstances, uh, to deal with infectious disease. One thing that I think makes, uh, that I found makes my position a little awkward is that, you know, when you look at not the ideal, you know, I could tell, in fact, you know, I, I remember telling my wife back in May uh, that, you know, if only they would put me in charge, right, everything would be fine, uh, which... If you, if you know me, that is not my general attitude to things. I'm not the sort of person who normally thinks, oh, yeah, I know how to, how to deal with stuff. But I, I do think 
that in this case, you know, I could have done it. All right, fine. Uh, but, you know, it is the case that if you look at how a lot of these, the response has been actually Im- implemented, it, it's been in a very, uh, uh, you know, somewhat arbitrary and hypocritical way, both in terms of, you know, there's lots of incidents of elected officials not abiding by the own rules. And then uh, even more significant, there's some of the mix of restrictions are in what I would consider to be irrational. I think the the key case of this is right now, you know, in New York, they've just closed down the schools again yeah. because uh, there's spread, but the rest, you could still eat in a restaurant. Uh, the gyms are still open. And the evidence that we have suggests that Schools are not a huge transmitter of COVID, comparatively speaking, but the you know, restaurants and gyms are. <laughs> and, right. you know, if you ask, like, well, why Why is it that, that they would shut down the schools so quickly uh, but keep the restaurants open? You, there's, a, there's a pretty clear answer to that. It ha- does not have anything to do with, with science. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess, what do you say in terms of, yeah, okay, as, you know, in theory, uh, these restrictions, they make sense, but... The people, the people involved are not doing are, are not doing them right, and so they're not they're, they're going to screw up the the whole thing, and it's not gonna it's not gonna work. You shouldn't trust them. Yeah. Okay. So I've just spent like quite a bit of time dumping on on conservatives and libertarians. So let me turn this around now and start dumping on the left. <laughs> um, yes. Disastrous, disastrous decisions to continually exempt. Right. It was the, you know, the Biden election parties, but before that it was the George Floyd protests. And I think what George happened to George Floyd is morally monstrous. But that said, the virus doesn't care. Right. And I was worried about this in June. I was where I was writing columns saying, guys, like, that's it. We're never going to get anyone to social distance again because you just the public health community just wrote a giant and and the politicians. There was a point at which Bill de Blasio was literally just saying well, you can't compare your desire to go to church and worship the creator, like some dumb thing like that, to something really important like fighting systemic racism, right? I mean, like I'm very slightly strengthening what he said, but it is it was very close. And he wasn't the only one who said it either. You, It was appalling, right? It was, we. if you were urging people to do something that's really hard, like number one thing you have to live up to, you have to model it before anything else. Before you talk to me about using the government or anything else, model it. And you cannot write exceptions. If you write yourself exceptions or if you write exceptions for the stuff you think is really important, people are going to be like, well, you know what? I think church and Thanksgiving are really important. So, right. And this is a consistent problem with the educated class. And the, one of the reasons I think that Donald Trump was elected was it's, it's I, like I agree with them. They're not wrong about COVID right now. Um, and they aren't wrong either that, that Joe Biden won the election, but they are not behaving in ways that are trustworthy. They are setting up rules, right? They, they're reserving to themselves the right to write the rules, and then they are also reserving to themselves the right to make exceptions to those rules that turn out to favor them, right? If Hillary Clinton was calling um, Donald Trump an illegitimate president in 2019, did anyone even remember that? Did they freak out? talking about how like the most important it's sacred to democracy that the loser admits they lost the election. No, they did not. Like, you know, it was like a passing story. I'm sure someone tweeted that you shouldn't say that, but the media did not. No one, 
no one who is now freaking out justifiably, completely justifiably about what Donald Trump is doing, which is worse. He is the sitting president, and at least Hillary Clinton conceded in 2016. That said, when Stacey Abrams refused to concede the election in Georgia, and everyone's writing all of these glowing pieces about her, about how she, um, you know, she, she organized Georgia, she refused to concede an election she lost. And if that is a problem, it has to be a problem when Democrats do it too. You have to worry about what that does to democracy because your hypocrisy is eroding democracy. Democratic norms are about, like, the legitimacy of democratic norms is, yes, about Donald Trump saying he lost an election he lost. But it is also about everyone applying their standards to these things and not kind of just looking the other way when their own side does it. And there's always been a little bit of that. People, I I include myself in this, I am no better or no worse than anyone else. Everyone always wants to make it, well, you know, you know, Don's having a real hard time right now. So (laughs) like everyone wants to write those exceptions, but it's too blatant now in part because institutions are so polarized, right? There's no, because the media and academia are so far left and, you know, the, then you've got talk radio is so far and Fox news so far, right. Is that there aren't people in the rooms going, Hey guys, wait a minute. No, this is actually really a problem. Right. And, and they can always point to something else on the other side of like, well, look at what those guys are doing. How can you ask me to talk about this when that, right? This is the conversation as someone who's kind of in the middle and um, a lot in a lot of these discussions, that's all I do all day is answer. How can you ask me to this when that? And I like, because you are Americans and you have obligations to your country. And like, no one cares about that answer. That's the answer I still give because I think it's correct, but it's, it's a huge problem. And the left, you know, the public health community has been extraordinarily bad at talking to the right. They don't like people. They don't like conservatives. They don't think they should have to. Uh, they don't think they should have to make allowances for them the way they make allowances for um, communities that they care about. That, yeah, you know, it would be ideal if they did that, but that's really hard. And I can't start out by just disrespecting them and telling them they're a bunch of idiots. I have to, like, you know, try to put this in terms they'll understand and be respectful and all that. They, like, the, the, the left, the right got none of that grace. And if you are surprised that they then turned around by if they that they responded by just refusing to listen to you, then you should take the opportunity to meet some human beings while you're visiting our planet. Um, and that's a problem too. I'm not saying it's you know I'm not saying what Hillary Clinton did is equivalent to what Donald Trump is doing. It's not, but it like you can't control Donald Trump. You can control you. So start with you. And I would say the same thing to the to conservatives. You can't control what the left does, but you can control you. So stop supporting the president who is refusing to concede the election and stop. I mean, like I have conversations now with people who are literally it's just it's like the total disconnect between what I am saying and what they're saying. So I'll say something like, you know, it's really risky. You, you live in a red state that's where the hospital system's already at capacity. It's just really risky to have a big family gathering where someone could have COVID and infect your elderly relatives or your younger relatives who could end up in the hospital and not have treatment available because they've, the hospital's broke, right? And they'll say, well, I'll just call it a BLM protest and then it'll be safe, I guess. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Look, I, I think that that, you know, I think you, I, I understand your grievance and I respect it, but that doesn't, like, this is not eighth grade. Oh, snap is not an answer. You know, there, there's a physical reality that we're talking about, not your grievances. And no one's, it's like people forget that there's an underlying physical reality that actually matters more than their grievances because they're so wrapped up in that. And, and you know, yes, 
I think the left has been wrong. The public health community has been wrong in the way that it has treated the right. It has not been respectful. It has not done what it should have done. But if you were an adult who can understand the numbers and what's happening, that doesn't excuse you from doing the right thing. And that is something, that is a lesson that we all should, I mean, it's true of me too, right? Like I, I think of this all the time because I find it so hard to keep my temper. And, you know, I think it's something that you see a lot of people who are like basically fairly COVID conservative. So we've had the same arguments so many times with the same people who are quoting the same completely false statistics about incredibly low um, fatality rates that apply only to very young people, right? I mean, the fatality rate for very young people is very low, which is great. Right, but it's not true that the the population risk of, of dying from COVID is 0. 0.00002 or whatever ridiculous number I'm being quoted. It's it's higher than that, and it can make you really sick, and it can make give you debilitating long term side effects. And also, it's bad to take up a hospital bed that means someone else's grandmother just doesn't get a ventilator. Right? It's it just anyway. So we've we've had these conversations over and over again and over and over and over and over and, and you get frustrated and like it just never ends. Like because a lot of the people you're arguing with, this is I'm sure I'm sure people on the other side feel just the same way. They don't care. Right? <laughs> They're not actually interested in what the numbers are. If you completely if you shoot down everything they say with irrefutable proof, if Jesus Christ himself walked across the Potomac and told them they were incorrect, they would merely retreat to a different argument. It doesn't matter what the argument is. What matters to them is that you must be wrong. And it is exhausting. And so I, this is the the one thing where I have found it the hardest in my life to keep my temper, especially because, you know, people just keep implying that this is because I'm neurotic and this is because whatever. It's like, actually, no. Like when Ebola was around, I was traveling. I was not freaking out about Ebola. Donald Trump was freaking out about Ebola. I was fine about Ebola. This is actually a special situation. Um, But there's just this constant, like, you know, this is because you're neurotic. This is because you are just working in your own little bubble. I've been working in this bubble, by the way, since 2006. I've been working from home since 2006. This has not changed my life. But I very much respect people who are worried and small business owners, and I've been arguing for relief for them. So you you get into these fights anyway, and I'm sure I'm sure everyone on the other side has their own list of grievances about how stupid I am and whatever. So you should have them on the podcast, and they can tell you about it. But the point is that it's just very hard. But I know when I lose my temper, which I do sometimes, I know I'm just hurting myself. I'm hurting the cause. I'm trying to advance. And I give into it because it feels good, and I'm mad. And so I'm not exempting myself. I'm not saying like I've always done the thing I should have, but like we should all try to do better because there is actually a virus out there. And regardless of what level of operation you think we should be at economically or the rest, we should all be doing our best within those parameters to make the virus go away because viruses are bad and I don't like them and you don't like them either. Um, And that's a place that it's so hard to get to because we're all so wrapped up in like our grievances, the last 87 rounds of this. And uh, you know, a bunch more rounds of other fights that don't really have anything to do with this. One of the things I thought was somewhat interesting, although maybe handled in a bit of a disingenuous way, is here in Texas, um, Governor Abbott took a different approach than I've seen in most other states, which is he, as a, a matter of state law, state proclamation, he said there couldn't be any fines of individuals for uh, not wearing a mask. And it was only a few months later that some of the, the cities and counties realized that there was an opportunity 
to impose fines on businesses, which I thought particularly, you know, particularly after the George Floyd protest, I thought, well, there's actually a certain logic to this. You know, if you're, you know, you, you want to prevent people from going inside into restaurants and such and not wearing a mask. There's a certain logic to it, I think. But he didn't tell the cities and counties that that was his plan. And then he felt he seemed like he was very smug about the fact that, oh, you just realized this months after that. Like, what games are you playing? <laughs> you know, why did if this was the whole idea, why didn't you actually explain this? You know, there's a yeah, yeah. wonderful moment in Obamacare um, where. The, the administration didn't want to put out any very specific guidelines for Obamacare plans um, because they were afraid that whatever they said would be ripped apart by Republicans. And so instead, for, for this is for the exchanges, for building the, you know, the plans for building the exchanges. And so they decided to just signal in this really like oblique way by picking out their like model states. And hilariously, the model states they picked out had two of the worst exchanges. Um, and it was so dumb, right? It was just such a dumb thing and it completely backfired. Um, and I think you do in politics, you get these really, really weird signals because if he had quietly gone and the problem is, and this is back to our polarized environment, if he'd quietly gone to cities and states and been like, I don't know if you noticed here in subsection B, clause two, <laughs> just saying, right? Someone would have leaked that. And so instead, you just wait for people to discover it. And it's a really stupid and inefficient way to do policy, but it is unfortunately more and more the way that we are doing policy. And it goes back to a lack of social trust more broadly, I think, is that that is what policymaking looks like when no one trusts anyone else, is that you have to put everyone on double secret probation and hope they notice. Our guest today has been Megan McArdle. Megan, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.